Well, hello and welcome to the seventh installment of our new board member orientation. I'm thrilled today that we have Amy Lujan, who is the executive director of the Alaska Association of School Business Officials. I always want to say officers, and I'm so glad that I'm corrected on that, that it's the officials. The Alasbo Group, which we work really closely with throughout the year, and we're thankful and blessed to have them present at our conference uh, occasionally. So I'm going to turn it over to Amy, and I'm simply going to forward her her slides for her and let her do the talking. So there you go, Amy. Okay. Thank you, Timmy. Okay, everybody. So I've been asked to present on school finance basics today, just a little bit of an overview and to give board members some resources um, that they could turn to if they want to get more in-depth later. So first, I just want to let you know what ELASBO is, the Alaska Association of School Business Officials. And I've been involved in ELASBO my whole career. They've been a huge help to me. Um, and now I'm the, currently the executive director. So ELASBO, our mission is to promote the highest standards in school business practices. And we've got 150 members from the K-12 business offices throughout the state. Almost every district um, has at least one member of ELASBO. Some of them have quite a few. So um, they're the people that do the, the school budgets, the payrolls, um, the purchasing, and all those types of functions in the school districts. We're having our 39th annual conference in December. We typically always have the, con the main conference in the first week of December, and I hope that you'll um, encourage your school business people to attend because it's a really great conference to come up to speed on so many issues that we have to deal with and all the changing laws and things like that, and then to know who to call when something comes up that um, uh, a LASBO member doesn't know how to deal with, they can call that network that we have around the state. So we do training and networking all year in addition to our conference, and um, there are ASBOs in just about every state. ASBO International is um, located in Virginia, and um, usually some of us go to the, the big international conference, but there are ASBO state groups in just about every state. We also are um, affiliated with the Council of School Administrators, that's ACSA, and that's the group that includes the principals, the superintendents, and then the business managers, so we can all work together on some of our issues. So that's about ELASBO, and you can learn more about us at our website if you like. There's a lot of resources there. Then, Timmy, the next slide, thank you, is uh, just a little bit about me. I've been involved in school business 15-plus years, starting out in Cusbuck School District, which is an REAA in western Alaska, and then North Slope for one year, and then seven years a business manager in Nome before um, Marie was on the board, but I'm familiar with Marie and her uh, her kids, so glad to have you here today, Marie. And um, two and a half years now as the executive director for Alasbo, so that's just a little bit on my background. Next slide, Timmy. It should be there. Okay, I don't see it, but I'll just Oh, go okay, well... I can see it up. Does anybody else see it? This is Kate. I see presentation outlines. Okay, yep. great. Just popped up for me as well. Okay. okay. So, um, just a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today, um, critical school finance functions, just to give you kind of an overview of those, how you could consider interacting with your district's business office. We'll talk about state funding and other funding sources that districts typically have, um, expenditures, budgeting, and audit. So those are the main topics that we'll cover in this overview. Does anybody have any questions or anything they wanted to bring up that uh, should be on this list? Sounds like a great place to start. Okay. We'll move on then. 
We'll start off with the critical school finance and business office functions. Now, I, I like to reference the policy manual. That always makes the AASB folks feel good because um, they drive that policy manual, and it's a great tool to help districts around the state keep up to date with their board policies, which are the important um, way that boards really dictate what goes on in their districts. With the AASB manual, you get all the legal updates and everything, so it's a really good um, reference that a lot, of pe a lot of districts are using around the state. So Section 3000 of the policy manual is the main one that relates to the business office and the school finance area. So that's titled Business and Non-Instructional Operations. And in that policy section, you're going to find uh, the information about budgeting, about revenue, also known as income, in the manual, expenditures that will cover um, rules about purchasing and contracts and how those are to be bid and administered and things like that. And the managing of assets is another important areas, area. There's uh, typically an inventory for all the computers and vehicles and other big pieces of equipment that districts have. And audits is, is a part of that management of assets because you're going to need to make sure that auditors come in and look things over and make sure everything is in order. So that um, section is pretty important for the um, board to recognize how they're um, dictating the policy for the business office to follow. Also, there's some uh, business office uh, function that overlaps into personnel section, uh, section 4000, particularly in the area of compensation and benefits, because it's usually the business office people who are actually running the payrolls. And so a lot of the decisions that have been made over the years about um, how leaves are to be accrued and how people are to be paid off when they separate or things like that, that's um, important and can be found in the personnel section. Next slide, Timmy. Thank you. So also just to mention a few other areas that are also important, and some districts may distribute some of these responsibilities to other staff outside of the, the business office specifically, but it depends on the size of the district, whether they have enough staff to you know, wear different hats or whether you have one person wearing 10 or 15 hats <laughs> loaded onto their head. But um, also in the Section 3000, you would typically have a lot of information about maintenance, risk management, um, such as you know protecting the assets and having emergency plans and things like that. Pupil transportation and food service are areas that are sometimes run out of the business office. Um, some districts have it in-house where they run, you know, their own bus program, their own food service program. Others contract it out. Uh, some have separate departments running these, which is nice if, if the district is large enough. And then you've got um, Section 4000 also includes the personnel areas of recruiting, conditions of employment, negotiations, things like that. Sometimes the business office can be pretty much involved in these areas, and other times you've got a separate personnel department. Then you've got the students area. And the reason that the business office would sometimes get involved here is because of the student records and the importance of having all that information in a really solid database. So you have to deliver that information to the state, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But that really drives the funding that the district receives. So it's very critical information to be um, correctly logged in and uh, then delivered to the state for purposes of funding, among other purposes, of course, to, to keep track of the students. And then finally, there's Section 7000. That's the new construction uh, section. 
And there you would have information and policies about planning and funding for projects. Now, sometimes in um, the districts that are involved with boroughs and cities, you would have other people handling this um, over at the borough and city um, administrations. But in other cases, you'll have the business office or some other people within the district handling the planning and funding for construction projects. So any questions on this part so far? No. Okay, Sounds moving on. Good. Interaction with the business office. Wait, I think Amy, Marie, did yep. you have something? I'm sorry? Yep. Oh, Marie had unmuted herself. Right. I was just saying it sounds good. Sorry. Oh, thanks, Marie. <laughs> Unmute. <laughs> oh, thanks, Marie. <laughs> okay. It's good to know people are still out there, still listening in. Okay. So um, interactions with the business office. I was just wanting to suggest some ways that um, the board members uh, can get involved and, and learn more. Um, typically, your school district will have an organizational chart. And as I was suggesting on the previous slides, you'll want to kind of figure out how that organizational chart relates to the policy manual, which is your main document as a board member. Um, so, you know, who's doing what within your district and try to get a pretty good feel for that. And you will over time when you hear different presentations, of course, at your meetings and such. But, you know, you can always ask questions about that, too, and that's important to make sure things are covered and to know who's, who's handling it. You'll also want to request and review procedures manuals. Um, that, that the district may have that you may not otherwise see unless you happen to request a, a copy of it, which is certainly uh, something that you may always do. Negotiated agreements. And then the chart of accounts is um, something that the district develops, which is driven by the state. They have a, a mandated chart of accounts. But then sometimes districts go beyond that and have their own um, chart of account um, additional coding areas. So you'll often see uh, financial reports, maybe if you're reviewing checks or something like that, with these 12 number codes on it. And it looks very complicated. But um, once you start to become familiar with it, it's really not that bad. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more later. But it helps you understand really how the district is organized in terms of the funding um, being organized and controlled by different departments within the district. So um, I always encourage board members to request additional sessions, especially when they were new board members, to really go over some of these critical documents. Because if you could have somebody sort of walk you through it a couple of times, it's a lot easier to understand from year to year as you go through the board meetings and presentations. Just to walk through maybe with your business manager, your some monthly financial reports, take a look at the budget with the person sitting next to you, audit reports. You know, it shouldn't be too intimidating because, you know, you're just trying to learn and they recognize that you're not a financial person. But um, if you request that time, I think most business managers would be actually pretty happy <laughs> to hear from you. I would always try to get new board members to spend some time with me because it really helps um, them to understand better and then they can ask better questions as, as you move through. Okay, I think we can move on to state funding basics. Now, one thing about the state um, funding and the way they fund the school districts, which is most of the revenue for most districts, is it's complicated. <laughs> Sometimes people say, well, how many dollars do you get per student? Well, that's just really way too simple of a question. Unfortunately, you can't really give a solid answer to that um, because it depends. It depends on 
the district, the, the cost factor that the district has, you know, depending on how far up the road system they are, and, and there's different factors that relate to that. The different school types, the school sizes, um, whether the student is special ed or not. I mean, there's just so many different um, factors that go into it. Um, also, uh, districts are funded differently depending on whether they get something called impact aid. And impact aid is a big program that the feds designate for districts that have military bases or Indian land. Those are the primary primary reasons that the districts would get impact aid. So you've got, you know, Kodiak, Anchorage, Fairbanks have some military bases in their areas. Those are just to name a few. And then you've got some rural districts that have a lot of these Indian lands, lands that have come through the ANCSA process, for example. And the reason they, that the feds put this impact aid program in is because those lands cannot be taxed. And so it's within the district, but they can't charge any property taxes on those lands. So therefore, to make up for the fact that the local districts can't collect any property taxes, the, fed pays, the feds pay this in, impact aid money. Now, in Nome, Marie, the impact aid is pretty small. I think it was something like $60,000. I'm just using that as an example of the low end. But in a district like Cuspuck, which is an REAA over eight villages that I worked at, we would get well over a million dollars, maybe closer to $2 million a year in impact aid. But the thing about that is in the state formula, they deduct most of that back out of the state aid. So you don't really get to keep it. And it's been very controversial over the years. But <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the presentation. But that's just something to be aware of, that some districts are eligible for a lot of impact aid, but then most of it is deducted back out. They only get to keep about 10%. So I would work very hard on that application <laughs> for a very small amount of money that my district would actually get to keep, which was a little frustrating at times. There's also politics, of course, and Alaska being such a diverse state, um, a lot of politics plays in, especially whenever they try to rewrite the funding formula. And um, the last formula rewrite was in 2000. It was a big deal. It took multiple years. And um, it's tough because whenever you even tweak the formula, you know, there are winners and losers. So it gets pretty, pretty sticky. And trying to have some sense of equity across the state, which is just so diverse and so spread out. And districts are just so different. We did have a Joint Legislative Education Funding Task Force, which was abbreviated J-L-E-F-T-F, -F, if you can imagine that, which um, worked in 07-08. And then they, they came up with a bunch of recommendations that were implemented in 09-12. So we're just in fiscal 12 now. Let's see, we're finishing fiscal 11, and then we'll be in fiscal 12. So we're just kind of toward the end of um, the implementation period of the task force. And uh, they made some significant changes and recommended, and then the legislature adopted some significant changes to funding in, in terms of increasing the um, base allocation amount, changing the cost factors so that rural districts actually got more from the cost factor portion of the formula. So that was pretty significant, and also special ed was affected with the intensive students in particular. They provided more funding there. They were recognizing that times have changed, and um, the cost factor thing needed to be adjusted and, and such like that. We're now at a point, though, where they had increased the base, basic funding every year from 09 to 
11, actually, not into 12 in that case. But anyway, that sort of ended. And so now we're left without any increases to the basic funding unit within the formula. So that's something that's come up this legislative session and people are really concerned about, that if we don't get any increase to the basic funding unit, then we don't even keep up with inflation. So that's kind of putting Which is kind of our big message right now on the Hill. <laughs> that's what they're talking about right now on the Hill. They just had yep. a big hearing yesterday on SB84, which is a bill that would further increase the base allocation in the funding formula. It's called the base student allocation. I think that might be on the next slide, but that's the piece that everybody's kind of focused on, seeing if we could get them to increase that. So we can plan ahead. If they tell us over the next few years what that amount's going to be, it helps us to plan our budgets and not be in a crisis mode every spring waiting for the legislature to tell us if we're going to get an increase, if we're even going to be able to keep up with inflation um, with our costs. So that's something a lot of us are working on. Okay, I think we can move to the next slide then. Okay, just some terms to know with regard to the foundation formula, since it is a really important part of every district's funding. Um, some terms involved with it. Um, it basically comes from a 20-day October count of the student population. The idea is that by October, things have kind of settled down in the district with people coming and going, maybe finishing up their summer plans, and finally they kind of settle into where they're going to, school, going to go to school for that year. And it's important to note that um, when they measure how many students you have for those 20 days, it's enrollment. It's not attendance. So if, if people get their PFDs and go to town for a week or something, you know, that doesn't really affect it as long as they're still enrolled in the district. And if they're expected to come back, and then sometimes they check, well, did they actually come back <laughs> if they did leave for a part of it? But it's not attendance-based. It's based on enrollment, what district the kids are enrolled in during that 20-day period. Now, if they go to Anchorage and enroll in Anchorage, you know, that's a problem because then Anchorage would pick up part of that count, um, but that doesn't usually happen. So it is a 20-day period. Sometimes it starts at the very end of September and goes into, like, October 20th or something like that, but it's a 20-school-day period. And then what happens is the districts collect all the student data about who's enrolled, you know, what ethnicity they are, gender, you know, grade, of course, and and things like that. And there's a whole bunch of fields, maybe like 40 fields or something of, of data on each student. And they put that into a system called OASIS. I can't remember what OASIS stands for. Everybody just calls it OASIS. <laughs> and it's been going for a few years now. So basically you're uploading all this data to the state. And then they look at the data and they match it up between districts. And if they see that, you know, John Smith went here and he also went there, you know, they have to have the two districts kind of reconcile that out. Um, maybe it's a different John Smith, but it could be the same kid. And there's a state ID number that each kid has, so they have to make sure that that those are all correct and that there's not any conflicts. And if there are, like, duplicate enrollments, like we would often have kids in Nome, for example, that might also end up enrolled in one of the villages in the Bering Strait District, which is right nearby, maybe they were kind of going back and forth because they had relatives. And, and then we have to figure out where the kid really was, if they were attending one place or another, <laughs> and, and kind of figure that out. So nobody can get credit for more than... 20 days, you know, if you add up 15 days in one district and five in another, you know, the state's not going to give funding for a duplicate in two places at once. So that has to be reconciled out, and it takes from 
late October until February, typically, to reconcile all that out. It's a massive project at the state level and with districts having to submit proof of their enrollments and things like that. So then another term to be familiar with is base student allocation. I mentioned that before, and that's really the basic building block of the foundation formula that we usually debate about with, within the legislature and, you know, how much is our districts going to get for base student allocation. That's what we tend to focus on without wanting to do a big formula rewrite. Nobody really likes those, <laughs> but just to try to get make sure that that base student allocation increases in a reasonable way over time to keep up with inflation at a minimum. But then there are other parts of the formula here that I've listed. The special needs block grant, that's gotten some attention recently. That's an additional 20% that's added on to the formula to cover special ed, bilingual, career and tech, which is also known as voc ed. But all those things are supposed to be handled by this 20% block grant, and a lot of districts special ed ends up eating up a lot of that because there are just so many federal mandates and um, so many needs in the special ed area. And it just depends on the, on the district, but um, that's been a common problem that districts have had in their funding. And they're considering at the legislature adding another um, factor in for additional vote ed money because people are realizing that that's something that's really critical to keep kids in school and keep them interested in careers um, to get more vote ed. I also mentioned before a little bit the district cost factor. And um, so districts off the road system get a cost factor. I think maybe Gnomes was something like 13%, and it's probably gone up a little bit. Or maybe it was, no, I'm sorry, it was more like 30%. I'm sorry. But it's it's been based on studies that they've done in the past of how much more it costs to ship materials out there, how wages are higher to compensate for higher costs of living, and just so many factors. Economists have done these studies. But it's very complicated to try to figure that out. Um, when I first started in education, I thought, oh, that shouldn't be so hard. But it is. <laughs> and it's also very politically controversial because um, when you have a limited pie of funding and then you put this cost factor on it, there's going to be winners and losers, people that get less funding if other people get more. So that's always a controversial thing, setting those cost factors. Then I mentioned the impact aid deduction, um, how they end up backing a lot of that out. And for the districts that have boroughs and cities, there's the local contribution part of the formula. In the formula, there's a calculation where it, says this is how much um, the city of Nome or the borough of Fairbanks or whatever it is, these, these borough and city entities have to contribute to education. There's a minimum amount that they have to contribute. And then there's a maximum amount that they can contribute. And most districts fall somewhere in between the minimum and the maximum. And uh, if they're funding at the maximum level, that's called to the cap. They're funding to the cap. Some districts, like uh, Kenai, for example, has funded to the cap um, for quite a few years. And that shows real local commitment. And some people say, well, you know, Kenai should um, um, be allowed to maybe get more money somehow. But it has to do with this whole impact aid deduction part that with the federal formula. They have to set this maximum local contribution in order to be allowed to deduct the impact aid. It's kind of a complicated formula, and some people say, well, then those districts, mostly REAAs, that get impact aid and have it deducted, they're really making a local contribution, too, since they don't get to keep that impact aid. 
And uh, those two things are kind of tied together within the laws, the federal laws. And that's why they have to have a minimum as well as a maximum local contribution. So I've spent some time on this, and it's, it's complicated, and I hope I've given a somewhat clear explanation to get you started. If you really want to dive into it some more, there's a pretty good example that you can work through. It's a couple pages long um, on this website that I've given you. It's a PDF that you can work through. And I think even no might still be the example that they're using there because it had a lot of the different elements right in there. So if you want to really get dive into it some more, I would recommend that uh, PDF. It's really not too bad, and you'll definitely have a good understanding after going through that. Okay, other funding sources we've got here. Um, aside from the state, we have the feds funding education quite a bit. We've got the title grants, No Child Left Behind. Also, um, we've got ARA now, the stimulus money. Those are the two big federal acronyms. Impact Aid, I mentioned. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. And you have direct grants. Indian Ed is one of the biggest ones that most districts do receive. And there's other competitive grants um, that come up from year to year, depending on what the feds are trying to promote. And then finally, you have other agencies, state, like the University of Alaska, for example. They administer a bunch of grants and even private grants. So those are the different types of funding sources. Does anybody have any questions before we go on to expenditures side of things? No questions here, thanks. Okay, good. Expenditures. So um, one important thing to point out is that school districts spend 70 to 90% of their operating budgets on wages and benefits. And I think that's something that's often overlooked when people are talking about uh, school budgets. People say, oh, we have to cut a million dollars. Let's cut, you know, administrator travel. Well, administrator travel might be, you know, 30,000. It's going to take a lot of 30,000s to come up with a million dollars. So when you have to make big cuts, if you're faced with that, you really do have to look at wages and benefits. That's where the money is in school district budgets. It's a people business. You're putting people out there to deal with students and, and get the job done, and that's where the money is, 70 to 90%. So you might want to check about your district, how much they're spending on wages and benefits. I'm sure it'll be in that range. In the non-payroll area, purchasing procedures are really important to understand that things are being done fairly with regard to all vendors. A lot of times this is what gets the uh, local vendors kind of upset if if things aren't being bid out fairly and handled fairly in terms of, of payments and all that sort of thing, contracts. So that will be driven by your policy manual, and so that's important to be aware of. And then with regard to expenditures, you have to think that there are really several different types of funds. There's special revenue funds, you'll hear that term, and then there's the operating fund. The operating fund, also known as the general fund, is really the main fund for the school district for the main educational stuff. The special revenue funds will be required when you've got food service, pupil transportation, student activities, and all the grants. So sometimes you could have 20, 50, even in the huge districts, you'll have even 100 special revenue funds. And some of them might be quite small, but if they're an individual grant, they have to be in their own fund. And so they can be accounted for that way. That's a little bit different than private sector accounting is this thing called fund accounting and that is required by the state and the feds. Okay, any questions on expenditures? All right, good. 
Well, going on to um, budgeting, um, during the budgeting cycle, a lot of the focus is going to be on that operating or general fund. Sometimes the special revenue funds will be touched on briefly, but the operating fund is going to be the main part of, of your budget and the main part that will get the most of the focus. So in your board policy, it will outline the timelines and the ways that the public can get involved. Usually a certain number of public hearings are required for the budget so people can give input. And um, also if you are working with a city or a borough government, they'll probably have ordinances that dictate the budget must be delivered to them by a certain date for their review and their funding approval, something like that. So a lot of your timelines are going to be driven by their timelines. With regard to the state, the general fund budget is due to the state in July. I think it's either July 1 or July 15th. I, I believe it's the 15th. So um, you have to get the budget into the, the state, and then they review it um, and make sure that there's no problems that they can see from the point of view of the chart of accounts and, and things like that. But it's always important to remember that when you get to, into the detail, budgeting is really a best guess. Nothing's ever going to work out the way you plan. We all know that. <laughs> but we're trying to anticipate, you know, what level of salaries we're going to be hiring new employees at, what the price of oil is going to come in at, uh, how insurance is going to come in. A lot of things are unknown, really, when you're doing this budget way back in February, March, April time frame, and um, you're usually on a best guess. So there's usually a couple of uh, revisions during the year. After the student count, that's a big unknown, how many kids are going to show up and be enrolled in the district. So after that, there may be a budget revision because that determines a lot of the funding. And then, as I was saying before, with OASIS and once they resolve the duplicates, in February you really get the final, final information of how much you're going to get through the state funding program. And then other things come in, like what was insurance actually going to cost. We usually don't know that till, uh June, what it's going to cost starting in July. Utility rates, of course, big oil purchases over the summer and things like that. Personnel costs, how much those teachers actually cost that we, that we hire over the summer. And then, all, of course, hundreds of other unanticipated things that happen. So a budget is a best guess, and we always have to keep that in mind and, and continue adjusting during the year. Any questions about budgeting? Um, this is Kate, and I actually had a quick question back on expenditures now that I had a moment for it to absorb. Um, okay. You were mentioning that between 70 to 90% of expenditures are in um, the wages and benefits. Yes. And is there a requirement that there, that 70% of the budget is for wages and benefits I had a, or for personnel or instructional material? I, I had a conversation with our local business manager, and I just wanted to clarify. Yes, there's a requirement. That's a good thing that I could add to this slide. Thank you. Um, there is a requirement that 70% be spent on instruction. Now, that just doesn't mean personnel, but it means instruction. That okay. means the teachers who would be classified as instruction, maybe some of the administrative people and instructional materials and things like that. So things like maintenance and business office expenses, um, the superintendent, uh, insurance, those things are not considered instruction. So yes, there is a state requirement that 70% be spent on, on instruction. However, there's a waiver process, and something like half the districts in the state get a waiver every year because cost of uh, fuel and maintenance is so high, especially in the rural districts, it's pretty hard to meet that 70%. A lot of districts are in the 60 
to 65% range. Um, but with the cost of fuel, it's just been too hard. So um, that waiver process, in fact, the state board just here at the March meeting was approving a bunch of waivers. And it's starting to be seen as kind of a time a time waster because people end up writing the same waiver every year, <laughs> and there are some factors that just make it pretty impossible for them to meet that um, goal. Um, and so does that then on the July budget, that 70% of that budget that's getting submitted to the state for approval demonstrate 70% is um, for instructional purposes? That's the timeline where you're trying to prove that? Right. So you submit your July budget, your budget in July, I should say, and then um, you submit a waiver. I think it might be due like in October or something like that, or November maybe. And then the state board has to review it, so you finally get your approval in March. Now, even if your budget did meet the 70%, if you fell to 69% um, on your actual expenses, you can get dinged for that as well. <laughs> so you don't want to be a squeaker on it. You want to <laughs> come in well above and, and maintain that. Otherwise, you could fall below and, and you could get dinged for that. So most districts manage to work through it. It's just a matter of not missing your paperwork deadlines. It's a it's a worthy goal, but I think the 70% actually came from lower 48 states where they didn't have the big fuel costs, transportation costs, some of those things that may not be coded to instruction. But, you know, you got to keep the schools open. you got to keep the lights on. <laughs> so it's part and parcel of delivering education as well. Great. Thank you. Okay. Well, I think we can flip to the last slide. There we are, audit. Um, by state and federal law, districts have to have um, – an annual financial audit, and um, June 30th is the year-end for all districts in the state. So summer is audit season. Some people say, well, enjoy your time off, and we say, well, actually, we're getting ready for the audit. <laughs> fun, fun. The fun continues. But it's usually in um, August that um, the auditors are making the rounds in the state, and the board will typically um, review the audit in the fall, and it's delivered to Department of Ed in November, and they review it as well. So it's a pretty important exercise. The audit statements have gotten actually more complicated as time has gone on, sad to say. But with all the financial uh, crises like Enron and all this stuff, they've come down with more and more requirements that affect even school districts um, and trying to make sure that people can really analyze what's going on. But I think it's made it actually harder to understand what's going on in some cases. Um, they're long. But I think that hopefully the auditor will give each each school district a, a presentation and point out some of the important numbers and some of the important things that um, you might want to be aware of. At the bottom there, I put questions to ask. This is for any audit. Um, did the auditor issue a favorable opinion? There'll be a letter, but it might be buried in there, and it might be hard to understand the audit ease language that it's written in. But was it a favorable opinion? Do they think that things are being done correctly in the district? Even if it's a favorable opinion, there may be recommendations for improvement. And so you should be aware of what those are and how they're being addressed. And um, that's uh, some basic questions you can ask any auditor uh, in any presentation that you attend. Now, there are also program audits. Um, either state or federal auditors can come in on food service, E-rate, impact aid, special ed, IRS. Every district receives probably one or two of these types of audits a year. It's um, it's not unusual. And so um, it's kind of a big pain in the neck, but it's important to, to make sure that the funding keeps flowing and that things are being done correctly in your district, that things are um, 
being done fairly to all students. So that is the last part on audit. Any questions on this one or anything else? Uh, this is Kate. I don't have any other questions at the time. Okay. Well, Amy, I think that was a great overview. I mean, I even learned stuff because the budget is certainly not my expertise at all. So I really appreciate what you were able to share, and I think it's a great overview. I failed to mention that Kate um, in Cordova is brand newly elected. Um, Cordova holds their elections in March, so we should welcome her to the association. <laughs> and it was great that she could join in and, and get her feet wet by this webinar. So, um. Yeah. Okay, well, I would just uh, close by emphasizing that you know, we all want to focus on instruction and the actual services that students are getting, but, you know, the financial condition of the district is really a backbone of the mm -hmm. district. And if you don't have your house in order, so to speak, it can really pull everything else down. So it's definitely an important responsibility of the board to keep up with this, and I recognize that most people elected to boards are not accountants. And um, I just think it's worthwhile to take a little time to, you know, not be scared to ask questions and try to get a basic understanding. So hopefully I've given you some pointers on, on how you might approach that. Thank you, well, Amy. I, sure, I sure appreciate it, Amy, and I think that the, the members here and those that will listen later will definitely agree. So thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Have a good day, everybody. Thanks, Amy. All right, bye-bye. Right. Bye, Marie. Bye, Kate. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Timmy. Thank you. Please stand by.